I'm so thankful, I'm so grateful for the cross, and I know that you are too, but you know it doesn't mean much without him getting back up three days later. Without the resurrection, his death was still an amazing act of love and sacrifice to be sure, but with the resurrection came validation of everything that he taught and proof that he was in fact God. So that everything that he modeled for us, everything that he lived and did and everything that he said, it was all authenticated when he got up and walked out of that tomb. And this is the fork in the road between the gospel of our faith and every other major religion. It's the resurrected Jesus Christ, the cornerstone that the builders rejected. You see, there's actually a lot of agreement between Christianity and Judaism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and even Islam when it comes to some of our scripture, particularly the Old Testament. But we reach an impasse when we get to the resurrected Jesus. All other religions stumble when we arrive at the cross in the empty tomb. And that shouldn't surprise us because he is the stumbling block. 1 Corinthians one twenty three. The fact is, all other men and objects that humans have worshipped throughout history are either dead or dying. But Jesus Christ is alive. He's alive and well, and he's the reason that this day, Resurrection Sunday, is so important to our faith. Most Christians, as you know, in the Western tradition refer to this as Easter Sunday, and there's been a lot of debate about whether or not Easter was derived originally from an ancient pagan celebration or an ancient goddess. But the word Easter that we have today, at least from the second century on, according to our disciples, Jesus' disciples, come from the word Passover, which was Pascha or Pascha in both the ancient Greek and Latin, and Pesach in the Hebrew. And it is our most important holiday because it's the culmination of the Passion Week or Holy Week. So rather than get into a lengthy dissertation about the possible alternative origins of Easter, which I'm, by the way, not the least bit convinced about, is valid, some of those arguments. I've read them thoroughly in both sides. We will rather focus on why we, the church, celebrate Easter today. And we'll do that by continuing on our journey to the cross. And I just want to say as a quick side note, one of the things that really bothers me, it really disturbs me, is when we, the church, Christians the body of Christ, get into these heavy, heated debates in public over some of these kinds of issues. I just want to ask you, please resist the temptation on a public forum like Facebook to dive into a debate over things like this with other Christians. It makes us look foolish, and it makes us look divided. Right When we're on there and there are thousands of people on Facebook seeing us batter each other to death over whether or not Easter comes from an ancient goddess or from the Passover, it's silliness for us. It's fine to have those conversations over lunch. I love to talk theology with folks, but not in public. The church needs to be unified in public. It's one thing if someone is saying something heretical, but when we, when we focus more time on what divides us as the church than we do on what we have in common, we have lost the battle with non-believers. So please, resist that temptation. We should stand unified, okay? And those discussions are for in-house things amongst ourselves, right? Last week, we began this journey of following Jesus through the Passion Week or Holy Week. 
starting at the triumphal entry, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to the cheers and excitement of the crowds. And we ended the day on the Last Supper, which in most Christian traditions is called Maundy Thursday, not Monday, but Maundy, M-A-U-N-D-Y, Maundy Thursday or Holy Thursday, which is the day before Good Friday. Today then, we're going to move ahead on this journey together and see where it leads us. And I want to point out that the importance of going on this pilgrimage together with Jesus during Holy Week is not only to commemorate and give thanks for what he's done for us, although that's certainly a significant part of it, but it is also to attempt to discern the implications of Jesus' actions and teachings during the Passion Week for our lives today. Right? In other words... What does the last week of Jesus' life on earth as a man tell us about how we should live our lives on earth today, okay? So let's pick up the narrative where we left off last Sunday. If you would, we'll turn together to the gospel according to Matthew chapter 26 in verse 30. This is just after Jesus' final meal with his closest friends, which was an extremely emotional time for the entire group. Jesus was beginning to reveal to them that his death was imminent, and that he would be betrayed by one of them, and they were all together grieved by what Jesus was telling them. And I love the simple beauty, you know, the picture that Matthew paints at the end of the supper. Just imagine these men, such a close-knit group of friends reclining around a table, enjoying each other's company for the last time in that manner. They've, They've eaten together and sat around the table together so many times. And, and shared their hearts with each other. And here they are in this setting for one final meal as a group of friends. And, you know, they've had their fill of food and drink. They've cried together because they knew that everything was about to change. And just as Jesus has shared the deep sorrow of his heart, the reality of what was coming, what did they do next? Verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You know, that had to have been such a sweet and special moment together. In the midst of their grief and sorrow, on the eve of the death of the one that they'd completely sold out everything for and followed faithfully for so long, they raised their voices together and sang a song of praise to God. And lest we think that they just quickly sang a few lines of a psalm, it's generally accepted by most scholars that they would have sung the Hallel Psalms, 113 through 118, six psalms that were commonly sung at the Passover celebration. So they were singing together for quite some time. You know, that was one seriously heartfelt worship service. What a moment. What a moment. And that's what I was telling you earlier. There's nothing more powerful, I think, than when we lift our voice together. Worship particularly singing together, can be such a powerful and unifying act when we join our voices as one in spirit and in truth, even in the midst of our hurt and our sorrow and our despair. When we praise God together as the body of Christ, we're unified in spirit. I love the fact that they paused to sing a song of praise together before they left that place. When we're struggling with something, when we're hurting or getting ready to confront something difficult, I just want to tell you, it's never wrong to take some time first and just worship the Lord. Before we do anything else, it can in fact calm our spirit and unify our heart to His, okay? Picking back up in verse 31, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. 
But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. I'm sure you know the story here, right? All of his disciples emphatically, passionately assured Jesus that none of them would deny him or fall away. Yet what happened? They all fell away, just as Jesus had foretold. As soon as the heat was turned up, they scattered. The truth is, we all fail the Lord sometimes. As sincere and as resolved as we can be at times not to fail him, we still sometimes do, don't we? And that's what's in question here. It's not whether or not we will fail. Romans 3.23 says we have all failed. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not that we shouldn't be aiming for perfection. We should. But it's simply a fact that we all fall short of that mark. What is not certain is what we do after that. Okay? And that is the significance of this passage. All of the disciples failed him, but not all of them responded to their failure in the same way. We'll come back around to that in just a moment, but let's continue reading verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him. This is his inner circle. And he takes them with him to share in his darkest hour, his deepest sorrow. There's something so palpable here about the friendship that they shared. Here's Jesus, God in the flesh, about to give himself up to the worst kind of death. And he calls for his closest friends to come and grieve with him and watch for him. Let me tell you something. If you think that you can walk through this world, through all the difficulties, all of the pressures, all of the struggles and sufferings that we face and make it on your own, you are mistaken. And please don't mistake this passage for weakness on Jesus' part. There is no weakness in sharing our burdens with each other. Did you know that's actually an act of strength? Sharing our burdens with one another is an act of strength. Galatians 6, we're instructed, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Bear one another's burdens. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That statement echoes what Jesus tells his companions at Gethsemane. We'll read it in just a moment. But listen to verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Okay? So we're instructed to help each other carry the load. There's no weakness in that. There is, in fact, much strength in bearing one another's burdens. And we're commanded to do this particularly for each other within the body of Christ, for other believers. Skip down to verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Okay? We were never meant to walk this journey alone. 
period. Like it or not, we're in this together. And this applies especially between believers, all of us. That's what Galatians 6.10 says, okay? Now let's go back to our main text, Matthew 26, verse 38. Jesus has just asked his very closest companions to come with him and share this burden with him, at least the emotional aspect of it. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What does this sound like? Galatians 6.1, we just read it. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Okay? Anytime something is repeated in Scripture, we'd pay uh, close attention. We'd do well to pay close attention to that. These passages, both in Matthew with Jesus speaking to Peter, James, and John, and Galatians 6, where Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, both of these passages are dealing with bearing one another's burdens, supporting each other, helping each other carry the load, the heaviness of life. And in both passages, Christ's followers are instructed to keep watch Pay attention. Don't be spiritually lazy. Don't fall asleep lest you fall into temptation. But this is exactly what his followers did. It's exactly what some in the church in Galatia did. And the truth is, it's exactly what many of us do today. It's so easy to become distracted by the cares of this life, isn't it? It, It's so easy to become weary, to get tired of serving others and... It is in those moments of weakness and weariness that we're far more susceptible to the enemy because we're no longer alert. We're no longer keeping watch, okay? Let's move on. The second half of verse 41. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and prayed away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with them a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? You see, sometimes we're not justified in doing what we want to do, what we know we could do, just because we could do it. Sometimes we have to follow through and follow the will of the Lord at the expense of our own desires. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but all of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Here we go. Then all of the disciples left him and fled. 
Remember, just shortly before this, they all said, man, Jesus, not me. Not us. We will never fail you. Verse 56. Then all the disciples left him and fled. (laughs) As we read on, we see that Peter denies Jesus three times, just as Jesus foretold. And, of course, Judas betrayed Jesus directly. Every disciple fell away. Every single one of them failed. They all fell short. None of them measured up. They weren't good enough. Guess what? None of us are. We all fail. What is really important is what we do after that. How do we respond to failure? Not all of Jesus' disciples responded the same way. Okay, chapter 27. We'll start on verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests. And the elders said, saying, I have sinned. Judas said, I have sinned, betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. Okay. Judas felt remorse. Without, without a doubt. He had regret. He had, he had guilt. But these feelings do not comprise repentance in and of themselves. They can accompany repentance. But emotional agony over something we've done does not equate repentance. Okay, in verse 3, the phrase changed his mind is the Greek word metamolomai, which signifies a change of mind, which is what the translation says. Whereas the Greek word metanoia, which is used throughout the New Testament for true repentance, signifies a change of heart. Two different words. Luke 3.3 uses the latter word, metanoia, when referring to John the Baptist's ministry. It says, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance, metanoia, for forgiveness of sins, okay? Judas's response to his failure was crushing guilt, remorse, regret, but not true repentance. And because he was unable to deal with his feelings by laying them down and ultimately having a true change of heart, he tried to carry his own load. But it proved far too much for him to bear, and he took his own life. In Acts chapter 1, we see Peter leading the other disciples and choosing a replacement for Judas. And he says, let another take his office. Okay? As time goes on and other disciples are martyred, we don't see the apostles gathering to choose replacements for the original twelve. Only this occasion, in response to Judas's unrepentant sin, do we see one of the original twelve being replaced. That needed to happen, because in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. You who have followed me. Okay, so for the fulfillment of this prophecy, there must be twelve, not eleven. There must be 12 that have followed him the entire time. So led by the Holy Spirit, casting lots, the 11 remaining disciples chose Matthias because he was one of the other followers who was with them from the entirety of Jesus' ministry. The passage describes him as being there the whole time from Jesus' baptism on, on through. If Judas had truly repented, he would not have had to have been replaced. The other disciples weren't replaced when they died. 
Instead, he tried to carry his own load. He tried to bear his own burden, okay? But Jesus told his disciples, and Paul told the Galatians, be watchful, stay alert, lest you fall into temptation. Bear one another's burdens, because we cannot always carry the weight of this journey alone. Be strong enough to lean on your brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? Now then, how did Peter and the other disciples deal with their own failures? We know that when Peter realized that he had denied Christ three times, he went out and wept bitterly. But how do we know he actually repented? We know because in John chapter 21, 15 through 17, after the resurrection, after Peter's sin, Jesus comes and asks Peter three times if Peter loves him. No doubt a reminder of the three times that he denied Jesus. And each time, Peter said, of course I do. But at the end of the third time, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. There was no call to repentance at this point. There was no rebuke from Jesus. Only a statement of Peter's absolute love for Jesus and a confirmation by Jesus of the calling on Peter's life. Okay, that wouldn't have happened if Peter was still unrepentant outside a relationship with Christ. Peter repented, as did all of the other disciples. They remained in relationship with one another because they had learned from Jesus the value and necessity of bearing each other's burdens. They learned to lean on and depend upon one another. And so, despite their failures, what, what did they do? They went on to change the world for Christ forever. Okay, listen. There may well be times in our lives when we fail miserably. That doesn't have to be the end of your story. You have a choice. You can attempt to carry the burden yourself. And you can experience all manner of shame and guilt and depression and remorse. And ultimately you will be destroyed by sin if there's no repentance. Because you can only carry that load so long. In the end, it will be the end of you. Just as it was with Judas. Or... You can choose repentance, true heart change, metanoia. Turn your heart and mind back to Christ. And just as he said to Peter, follow him. Learn to lean on other believers. Stay attentive. Don't grow weary in serving God. If you're in this, be in it for the long haul. Why be a Judas and invest all of our time, so much of our lives, following Christ only to give up in the end? I've seen people do that. I don't understand it. Stay the course. Don't give up. Don't give in. And don't try to make it on your own. That's sound advice. Don't you know that Peter learned this lesson well? He writes in 1 Peter 5, 7 through 9, Casting all your anxieties on him. This is Peter writing. Because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. We've heard that before, right? Peter's repeating what Jesus taught him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary... The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It's bearing one another's burdens. Be watchful. Resist the enemy. Bear one another's burdens. That was a theme in Peter's life and ministry, and it should be in ours. Okay? Back to the main text, Matthew chapter 27. Jesus has now been tried and sentenced to death. He's been mocked beaten before and after his sentencing. You know that? The second beating, the, the first was before his sentencing, wouldn't have been near as severe 
they never beat someone severely before they were sentenced, but they would beat them. The second flogging he received was the worst kind. The most horrible beating administered by the Romans, reserved for capital punishments. And then, of course, he was hung on a cross, crucified by the very people that he'd come to save. Picking up then in chapter 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let's, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Listen, the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. If it, if it didn't say... They were resurrected by Jesus. This would be just like a scene out of one of the zombie shows that people watch. I've actually never watched it. But I just had this image as a kid of all of these zombies coming up out of the grave and walking around. The truth is, these were probably Old Testament followers of God. And maybe even some people from the 400 years of scriptural silence between the Testaments. And they've now been re-embodied and are both witnesses to the New Covenant order. And also used as a witness to those in and around Jerusalem. You realize some of these risen saints may well have been dead for hundreds of years. Can you imagine the scene, what that must have been like? Man, it certainly would have been enough to convince me. And as we see in verse 54, it did convince others that Jesus was the Messiah. Another significant point worth mentioning is that this event shows that just as our resurrection from the dead today depends on Christ's resurrection having taken place, Likewise, did you realize that all of those who were looking forward to the Messiah, who had died prior to Jesus coming to earth, their resurrection depended on Jesus' sacrifice and rising from the dead as well. So that everything and everyone before and after Jesus' time on earth was affected directly by his resurrection. That is profound. Everything changed in that moment when he walked out of that tomb. Verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his new open tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. You know, the commoner in that day when they cut a tomb, it was a square stone that would be wedged into the hole. But the very wealthy people would cut round stones that could be rolled away so the body could be cared for easier at different times. 
it substantiates that Joseph was a rich man in the tomb where they believed Jesus was buried today. In fact, a round stone was a square hole, but a round stone was rolled and sealed. Okay? Verse 62, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away, and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was light, like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. <laughs> That's just awesome. <laughs> hey there. And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. You know Jesus had to have fun with that whole thing. It, just, it had to be the greatest thing. There are days when I look at our society, our culture, and I fear that this has all just become a nice story. You know, a fairy tale for many. Lest we become so arrogant in our unbelief as to presume that Jesus' life and death and resurrection has no direct bearing on our lives today. This passage proves, in fact, everyone has been profoundly affected by the life and death and resurrection of Christ, whether we realize it or not. I've had atheists tell me that I'm arrogant to think that I can somehow impose some meaning onto their life because of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And it really doesn't affect them at all because they don't subscribe to the tenets of the gospel. They don't believe what we believe. My answer to that is, you're a part of this story, whether you want to be or not. Whether you believe or not, and as much as you may think that you're in control of your own destiny, you are not. Because God is sovereign, and in that moment, when Jesus got up and walked out of that tomb, everything changed. 